DOE is certainly a doer. There are many things it's driving, it's doing, and so forth. But increasingly, DOE should be thinking about how to be an enabler and a, a platform. Welcome to Energy 360, the podcast from the Energy Security and Climate Change Program at CSIS. I'm your host, Lisa Highland. In this week's episode, my colleague Jane Nakano talks with three experts about how the Department of Energy could reorganize to meet the new climate and energy priorities of the Biden administration. Joining her are Adam Cohen, a former DOE official, president and CEO of Associated Universities, and a senior associate here in the Energy Program. Tim Lewin, professor with Georgia Tech and the executive director of the Strategic Energy Institute. And Leland Cogliani, head of the energy practice at Lewis Burke Associates. And he is a former Senate Appropriations Committee staff, where he oversaw federal programs, including the DOE Office of Science and ARPA-E. Adam and Tim recently authored a short white paper that discusses some of the possible organizational changes and modifications in response to a growing DOE mission. I'll turn it over to Jane now for this timely discussion. Tim, you recently co-authored a white paper with Adam recommending reorganization of the U.S. Department of Energy, DOE. Before we get into the specifics, though, uh, could you tell us a um, little about you know, what has led the two of you to prepare this white paper? Yeah, Jane. So I think if we start at kind of 100,000 foot and just think about some some macro framing things that are happening, you know, if you think about the energy system, the energy ecosystem, the political environment in which it's evolving, the regulatory environment, it's 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 evolving. It's a lot is happening. There's new suppliers, new delivery methods, new sources, new relationships amongst all those. So that's kind of one sort of macro framing thing. The other thing that's happening is with the Biden administration, we have this renewed commitment to Paris Agreement, really taking this this whole-of-government approach around addressing climate change. And so if you start thinking about, well, what are the implications of that, of how the government should organize itself for a whole-of-government? And then you start bringing that down to the level of, well, what does that mean for the U.S. Department of Energy? And is the current organization of the U.S. Department of Energy best set up to, to contribute to that? So that was really the, the key driver for the uh, the white paper. And if I were just to summarize kind of the overarching recommendations, it was this idea of, of DOE both serving as an enabler and a contributor to just this, this increasingly integrated, increasingly interconnected energy system. So, the, you know, as you mentioned, you know, the White House and DOE leadership, you know, have a lot of uh, sort of big plans and, and seem, you know, pretty anxious to get started. Um, but one could argue, though, that, you know, while these recommendations are good ideas uh, during perhaps a slow period, but there's a lot happening right now that are, you know, pretty urgent, uh, you know, urgent tasks to be done, issues to be addressed. Uh, so to spend some time and also political capital on, you know, things that are, that are rather sort of esoteric, like reorganizational, um, you know, reorganizing big entities, um, you know, may not be, you know, sort of the priority. Um, do you agree? I don't agree <laughs> in the sense that uh, this administration in particular has very ambitious goals in terms of net zero for the electricity sector by 2035 and economy-wide by 2050. To do that requires big, grand energy challenges and what will trip you up is the organizational structure of an organization. Uh, so without the right authorities, with the right budget functions and the right um, responsibilities, then 
the bureaucracy will get in the way of progress. Um, and right now, the way that DOE or is organized is by specific technology areas um, and uh, by specific, say, primary fuel sources, investments in solar, investments in wind, investments in fuel cells. These are important and, of course, should continue. But to do the things that Tim just described, that's looking at broad energy systems that bring together a combination of all of these technologies. DOE is not nimble enough or organized to do a lot of these cross-cutting activities that will be required to accelerate innovation and deployment. Uh, and so it will take a different approach. And while it's boring uh, to talk about organizational structures, it is absolutely necessary. With uh, grid modernization is an example, right? Uh, where, I mean, you have to get all these offices together and it's, as Adam knows, so hard for anyone to give up any money. Um, and then I would even argue the GMI call was okay, uh, but could have been organized and implemented a lot better because at the end they gave too many awards and spread out the money so thin uh, that it was almost useless. Yeah, in addition, I would say it's also important to think about the time for a new administration and when you have a chance to make fundamental changes. And so early in the administration is when you entertain these types of big changes for how an agency itself is organized or how it interacts um, with the rest of the government. And so if you want to take a look at climate change and addressing the clean technology needs for meeting the goals that are outlined by the Biden administration, you kind of have to look at this as a whole of government approach. So but now, uh, you know, as to the specifics, you know, let me go back to Tim quickly. So, you know, you two outline three key recommendations in this paper. And the first one is to reimagine DOE as a platform to enable systems thinking. You already sort of mentioned at the beginning about, you know, like sort of the best way that, you know, to summarize um, the systems thinking. But what does it mean exactly and uh, what specific changes would that involve? Yeah, so yeah, we use this word DOE as a platform. And you know, this there, there's a lot of platform businesses out there and we were very much kind of inspired as we were thinking about is just looking at at what's happening in the business world and how increasingly the most valuable companies in the world are are platforms. They're they're enablers as opposed to necessarily doing something specific. And so I think the idea there was very much the idea that that DOE is certainly a doer. There are many things it's driving, it's doing and so forth. But increasingly, DOE should be thinking about how to be an enabler and a, a platform. Um, a simple example, in fact, the, the, the administration is moving ahead on this, was our recommendation to restore EPSA, you know, the Energy Policy and Systems Analysis Office. You know, that, that helps inform and frame DOE programs. Um, you know, it can support some of the cross-cutting work and, and, and motivate some of that cross-cutting cutting, cutting work that, that can happen. But more broadly, you know, one of the things that we really see a need for are, are just broad, integrated energy systems models to support decision support. And that could be decision support within DOE, but just a whole range of, of external stakeholders. That could be business, it could be NGOs, it could be universities, and things like that. And, and we see, you know, for example, the Energy Policy and Systems Analysis Office, EPSA, they could be a key customer for that type of platform modeling work. Um, but also a potential owner. Um, you know, I think there, there are a number of 
entities out there, but most recently, um, Bill Gates' Breakthrough Energy Sciences, which is sort of rolling out some of these open source platforms for supporting this kind of broad societal decision support activity. But they're all incomplete. And so a really interesting cross-cutting idea that we, we think would, would have a lot of merit would be basically for, for DOE really thinking of itself as this platform to enable and support that. Adam, would you like to jump in? Yeah, and so let me add to that the idea that the, the government has certain roles that it should play and can play. Uh, certainly one of them is to be an honest broker and to be a trusted source of information. So, you know, the Department of Energy, for example, runs the Energy Information Agency, and that is viewed as the trusted source of information related to energy. How many gallons of this are pumped? How many of this is produced? You know, et cetera. And it's viewed as that because it is part of the government. And in some regards, what could be missing or actually what could be really helpful is if the government had a set of tools or information or models or platforms that could enable citizens, companies, whoever, to make decisions on what next steps to take, whether it's you know specific technologies or related to how it could or or wouldn't work in a given region of the country, or whatever it might be, you know, whatever question or decision you're trying to make, can the Department of Energy be an enabler so that that decision can be made in the most informed way possible? And so that's sort of the idea of serving as a platform to enable that result. Would you like to add some comments, Tim? Yeah, and, and I think just to add to that, one of the specific recommendations that we said is, you know, is the current EIA, the Energy Information Agency, it could, be, it could become the Energy Information and Models Agency. And the idea that it's very analogous to the role they already play. They already serve as this data platform and that they could also serve as a logical place to steward these models for, for, for this more broadly integrative um, decision support analysis for society. It's actually really helpful um, that you mention, you know, EIA in this white paper because it kind of helps, you know, those of us much more familiar with this to have some you know, specific entity that we can sort of, you know, think about uh, as, you know, sort of potential um, sort of model for what you have in mind. And then, uh, of course, you know, there, um, there's also a second recommendation uh, your white paper covers, uh, which is to integrate the science uh, and energy portfolios. What do you have in mind? Um, maybe back to Tim? Yeah, so, so the incoming administration is already moving ahead with reintegrating the science and energy portfolio. And so we're, we're pleased to see that. But a, a key point that we also make is that this is gonna require much more deeply integrative work than simply having these two organizations report to the same person. In particular, you know, the broad cross-cutting work, really, I think, commitment to the long game. I think this is, you know, horizontal program reviews and things like that, which where there's metrics and accountability over an appropriate time frame, you know, which probably on the order of five years. And I think in particular, if you think about the, the, the industries of the future and what is going to be required for the U.S. to really have leadership, I mean, take something like quantum computing, for instance, that is absolutely going to require deep integration across the science and um, energy and engineering portfolios. Would you like to jump in, Adam? Yeah, let me add to that. We often think of the process for research discovery all the way to an actually deployed technology as very fundamental and blocky. 
So you have research, and that leads to development of that research, and that leads to demonstration, and that leads to deployment. And then the marketplace, you know, you build a better mousetrap, and the marketplace comes and beats a path to your door. You know, and the reality is it doesn't work that way. It's certainly not sequential. Uh, there are certainly different motivations and, and interests. You know, there are lots of interesting questions to answer on the very fundamental discovery side of science. And there are lots of issues as you start to scale up a technology so that it can be both ready for deployment as well as marketed to the marketplace and fit into some supply chain. And it's the idea of integrating the science and energy portfolio, certainly when I was there uh, during the Obama administration, was to help enable that transition from a discovery science all the way through to where some of these decisions could at least be highlighted as gaps, if not answered as solutions. What materials do you choose? How do you uh, envision such a technology being developed further? How do you enable it to be deployed out into the marketplace effectively? And so that's the idea of integrating science to energy. Uh, and I think it's something that this country needs, not just in the energy space, but you know, broadly as to how you transition technologies from the fundamental stage all the way through to where it's really a marketed technology. So that's the concept of why this integration is so important. Yeah, it, it's definitely an issue that just keeps coming, you know, coming up. You know, we have great innovation capacity, but there's this bridge, uh, you know, between the, you know, innovation to the marketplace. And let me bring you back in, Leland. The role of the government in the applied science is where we've traditionally seen some partisan difference. Do you see a growing bipartisan support for DOE playing a role in bridging this gap that Adam has, you know, also, you know, described and something that I know that keeps coming up quite a bit as, you know, when we look at sort of the innovation ecosystem uh, that many of the uh, different energy technologies and also sort of fuel uh, worlds are uh, facing today. Yeah, I think the good news is there is strong bipartisan support. Um, and there's a few things to point to. First is the Energy Act of 2020 uh, that was passed in December of, of 2020. That was the first comprehensive energy innovation bill passed in 13 years. And almost every senator had a role in drafting some piece of that legislation as well as uh, almost two thirds of House members, both Democrats and Republicans. And the focus there was on the applied research and development programs of the Department of Energy. And interesting to note um, is that this came at a time uh, when uh, the Trump administration uh, was, was still in power. They, as you know, uh, in successive budget requests proposed eliminating ARPA-E, as well as cutting the applied energy programs by 80% and focusing only on fundamental research and really, really early stage technologies. While there was some soul searching by both Republicans and Democrats, and they all unanimously agreed that that would be a huge mistake. And that's why you actually passed a $30 billion innovation bill that actually expanded the number and diversity of demonstration projects that would go, as Adam mentioned, all taking the scientific discoveries um, and perhaps some of the early investments in ARPA-E to then public-private partnerships and actually demonstrating and scaling up these technologies. 
The other thing that happened um, is also in appropriations, the actual funding bills, DOE kept receiving significant increases despite what the, some of the budget caps that were still in place uh, to, to expand its portfolio in these areas, including in demonstration programs. And related to this uh, kind of systems integration portfolio approach, appropriators started to do um, in their bill, in addition to funding each of the individual programs that we've discussed before, like solar and wind, what they pointed out in the front matter is started to fund systems integration work. They pointed out, these are the cross-cutting investments, DOE, that you will do in energy storage in um, hydrogen production with integrated energy systems, including coupling with nuclear. This is what you're gonna do in quantum information science. This is what you're gonna do um, for chemical upcycling. And the list went on and on, rather than putting the money just in individual buckets, trying to give DOE as much flexibility as possible uh, to do those things. And last thing I wanna point out relevant to this um, is in 2018, the Trump administration actually did propose a reorganization of the Department of Energy. And it's actually not inconsistent with what, this, what we're discussing now. Their proposal was to create an Office of Energy Innovation, and it would have integrated all of the existing applied energy offices. So the one that does grid integration work, all the renewables, all the energy efficiency, nuclear, fossil, and just create one office. The problem at the time is that it was seen as an attempt in the guise of reform to actually cut and eliminate all those programs. So in the future, you'll you're going to need that transparency and trust by Congress uh, that you're actually uh, providing greater flexibility, but also more money and resources to do these types of things. But it was to unshackle the Department of Energy to think beyond just, again, specific technologies and have this broader approach. And to date, what we've seen from members of Congress um, is that they're willing to do that, but they need the Department of Energy and, and the White House to make that proposal in terms of what that structure would actually look like. Uh, speaking of Energy Policy Act of 2020, I recall that uh, there was also the creation of uh, chief commercialization officer role. I mean, there was, I think, uh, that sort of position uh, even during the Trump administration, but uh, my understanding is that it sort of formalized uh, the role. Is that correct? I mean, and, and if so, like, how does that fit into, you know, how you see this process going forward, this, you know, this renewed uh, effort to help bridge uh, this gap between sort of innovation stage to the, uh, to the market. Yeah, and so an, an important element um, of the legislation was to formalize the Office of Technology Transitions and create a chief commercialization officer that would take a broad portfolio review of intellectual property um, based on all DOE inventions across national labs and DOE-funded research universities as well as creating new entrepreneurship programs and lab partnering services to couple private sector companies, startups with national lab resources and experts. And the whole goal there, again, is to accelerate this energy innovation ecosystem. Uh, but I think to that point, another interesting point is up till now, it's been very easy to add to DOE without reforming it. So I was um, on the Hill in 2009 when we created ARPA-E, but that was easy because we took Recovery Act dollars, 
had $400 million of extra funding and added a new function. A few years ago, DOE created or broke off this new uh, cybersecurity office for energy assets called CSER. But that was, again, just modifying an existing function. Congress and the Energy Act called on DOE to think about a potential new office of negative emission technologies, potentially even an office of industrial decarbonization. But that just adds more layers of bureaucracy. And I think it's time where um, the additive aspects um, are getting too burdensome and a real reorganization is what's gonna be needed. Right, right. Added is always easier than you know, being sort of strategic and then keeping what's really needed for to really, you know, um, address the challenge of future. Let me uh, come back to Adam uh, for the next one. I mean, the, there is also the recommendation, uh, which is to pursue budget formulation with the portfolio approach explicitly oriented around outcomes. Could you sort of uh, explain this in uh, rather kind of plain English for those of us who are not as familiar with the budget formulation process? Yeah, and it's actually this builds upon something Leland just mentioned. You know, that part of the issue and one of the reasons why it's easy to add things is it's hard to make tough decisions. It's hard to make a decision where you eliminate a program or you reduce funding. And so one of the, the options that exists is during the development of a budget request, you can take a look at the whole portfolio and make decisions from a portfolio perspective. That is not just an individual program perspective. An individual program would decide, what are we going to do in the solar program? Or what are we going to do in the, the pipeline development program? Or whatever it happens to be. The portfolio would look at it and say, here is what the Department of Energy needs to do. And here's our portfolio. And here's how we're going to make decisions for that. And based on those decisions, here's the budget we put forward. And the outcome orientation is looking at what problem you're trying to solve, whether it's year on year or, you know, at a five-year interval or whatever time frame you want, and saying, this is the problem or this is the end state that we want to achieve. And therefore, here is what we're going to do with our portfolio. So essentially, if you unpack it, it's just a way of saying, if we want to set a goal and a measurable goal at that, and we want to take a look at the whole portfolio, it gives us options as to what we should be investing in, and maybe even consequentially, what should we not be investing in, and how do we make those tough decisions? So it either does or doesn't fit in the portfolio, and here's a chance where you can take a fresh look or a fresh set of eyes approach on how you're going to enhance or develop or add new programs and at the same time eliminate or reduce or uh, subsume existing programs or other programs that are no longer are heading toward that outcome. But, but then uh, how would this affect the work of OMB, uh, for example? Well, I think it should work in concert with OMB. I mean, I, my experience with OMB has been the following. They they want to see this type of informed approach and decision-making that is based on some fundamental uh, set of rules, for example. And so if you go to OMB and say, here's what we're trying to achieve, and here's the steps that we're going to do to do it, and here's how it fits in the budget envelope you've given us, I've never seen OMB say no. They've typically said, okay, that makes sense and I understand it, you know, and what can we do to help? 
uh, oftentimes the rub comes when you approach OMB and you say, you know that budget envelope you gave me? Well, I need 10% more because I need to do these other things. But I'm not going to tell you how I'm going to tighten my belt elsewhere. I'm not going to tell you what I'm going to eliminate. You know, so it often becomes a contentious discussion. Whereas I think if, if you go to them, as we did with some of the crosscuts that were done under uh, Moniz when he was the Secretary of Energy, and you say, here's what we're trying to achieve, and we actually have seven of the ten components we need, and here's how we're going to fill in the gaps, and here's what it looks like, and, you know, et cetera, that story is very compelling, and it's very easy to have that discussion with OMB. I don't know, Leland might have thoughts, but... Yeah, no, I, I agree with Adam in the sense uh, that... Uh, OMB can sometimes be a roadblock, but that's only usually if you're not aligned uh, with administration priorities. But in this case, since uh, climate change, environment, and clean energy is one of the top priorities of the administration, they will be very open to suggestions and guidance uh, from the Department of Energy. Um, and, and now is the time during your first budget formulation um, and your still honeymoon period of an administration if you're going to make big structural changes, uh, then I think you actually find that OMB is on your side in, in terms of both advancing administration priorities from a political perspective, and then uh, for all the budget examiners um, in terms of uh, just understanding what you're trying to do and how it would help um, actually accelerate uh, the types of activities that you're doing, they, they can be a great champion and ally. Tim, uh, you also suggest some reorganizations around applied energy offices, such as uh, fossil, solar, and transportation offices. Uh, can you describe those? Yeah, and I'll, maybe just I'll just frame that up with some context. You know, one way to think about to break up the, the larger energy system is to think of it as in three pieces. You know, the first piece are the sources of energy. You know, this could be nuclear, it could be coal, it could be wind. Um, the second thing is how we actually move that energy around or store it. Um, you know, these are electric transmission lines. This is oil and gas pipelines. In the future, it might be hydrogen. And we're also increasingly thinking about batteries for energy storage. There's that whole piece of, of, of infrastructure. And then the third piece is the users. You know, how we're actually utilizing the energy, which could be cars or, or electric power or, or a whole host of other things. And so if you look at how... DOE is organized today, given those realities, it's really, there are exceptions, but it's really largely organized around energy sources. Um, you know, we have a fossil office, we have a nuclear office, we have a solar office. And what that does is it scatters the, the offices that, that are dedicated to moving and storing energy around and using energy, it tends to scatter those around. And there's good reason for that. And that, you know, if you just think about the historical context of DOE, we were running out of energy. And so, of organizing around sources of energy made good sense. If, as we as we flash forward, you know, I don't I don't want to declare victory on energy sources. I mean, obviously, there's a lot of wind that we're going to have to get in, a lot of re new renewables that we're going to have to get in, but the price points are dropping. These things make sense. They're buying their way into the market. Increasingly, our choke points are going to be around the infrastructure for how we're moving energy around and moving it around in space how we're moving it around in time. And by and that's what I mean by storage, moving it around in time. That's where the choke points are going to be. And so if we think about the implications of that for DOE, you know, we have a pipelines office in, in, in FE. We have 
OE, the Office of Electricity, which is thinking about electricity carriers. We have a, a hydrogen office. We really think that it makes a lot of sense to reorganize into some sort of new office. We, we've called it the, um, the Office of Energy Carriers and Storage, that there's, that, such that you can really take this integrated view because fuels, electricity, storage, they're going to be very integrated and DOE needs to have the tools to manage that in an integrated fashion. Leland, there are a few congressional committees with jurisdiction over DOE. As someone you know, who worked on the Hill, uh, what are some of the key challenges to these recommendations that Tim and Adam have put together that may arise on the Hill? And, and what are some of the stakeholder groups that might you know, emerge as sort of key allies? Perhaps you know, the way that you sort of you know, a little earlier described how OMB could be a good partner and ally on you know, reorganization agenda. Yeah, so I think there's uh, kind of two challenges uh, with, with, with Congress uh, and reorganizations. Uh, one is that it requires the buy-in from multiple committees. Um, and just like anything in life, the more people are involved and trying to find consensus, the more challenging that can be. Uh, so for example, if some reorganizations DOE can do under existing authority under the Atomic Energy Act and some of the associated amendments, like putting together the Undersecretary for Science and Energy. You don't need congressional approval for that. However, if you're going to do the types of structural changes uh, that you're talking about, and as Tim suggests, you need both the authorizing committees, uh, which drive the, the actual organizational structure like House Energy and Commerce, Senate Energy and Natural Resources Committee, House Science Committee because of all of the R&D functions. Um, and of course, if you're gonna change all those budget functions themselves, you need the buy-in from both the House and Senate Appropriations Committees because uh, they have to be comfortable with the transparency and oversight um, over these programs. It's not insurmountable, um, and it's been uh, done before, uh, but it does require time and education um, and, and broader buy-in. And that's where your question about key stakeholders is so important. If members of Congress and the committees hear directly from their constituents and interested organizations that this is a good, a good idea, then the easier it is uh, to drive that change. And so I think key groups, um, of course, are going to be uh, you know, research universities, the national labs, um, as well as um, industry associations and industry groups, uh, more and more even um, some of the union groups uh, that will benefit uh, from these types of jobs. Um, and anyway, so I think it, it will require a, a broad uh, group of stakeholders. Uh, but again, I think the, the stars are aligned uh, in the sense that um, th there is, as I mentioned, bipartisan support. Uh, and I think if there's, as long as there's a clear, well-justified plan, as well as a new transparent budget structure um, that alleviates the concerns of interested stakeholders. So for example, some members are really big into solar. If you eliminate that specific solar pot, just showing them that there's still going to be a lot of investments in, say, solar energy technologies, but there's even greater opportunities to do, say, solar for desalination and solar tied with energy storage for greater resiliency with, with buildings. Um, and so it actually expands the number of opportunities. 
So this white paper has been out for a few weeks now. So what are some of the feedback you're receiving both perhaps, you know, unexpected uh, or, in, or expected um, and whether, you know, good or bad? Uh, I would say that, um, you know, obviously this uh, podcast and the discussions we've been having here is going to help to continue the discussion about feedback. Uh, certainly the current administration is making some significant changes going back to the models that existed under uh, Obama when he ran the uh, energy, or under his administration when Moniz ran the energy department. So the recombination of science and energy has happened. Certainly there's been some feedback that uh, maybe some of the big changes are done and now they want to get moving because they are, they are happy and uh, now they want to start getting things done. Uh, the new infrastructure bill that is coming out certainly is a motivator for this, that you actually have large investments that are coming and you need to get technologies developed and out the door in order to build back better and do the types of things that are described in the infrastructure bill. So I can understand why there is this desire to uh, let's stop you know, playing in the background and actually start playing the game on the field and let's start moving things. But again, go back to uh, the beginning discussion, and that is you have to take a fresh look at how these things are done and what are some of the gaps in order to really enable technologies to be deployed in a better way. And better way could be based on uh, equity and justice and engaging more underserved, underrepresented folks in the research ecosystem, or it could just be getting technologies developed and over that so-called valley of death to, in order to get out to the marketplace. In either case, uh, I think the intent of the paper was not necessarily to offer the specific solutions as much as to offer an, a different perspective to get a dialogue going so that these decisions can start to be discussed and pursued in somewhat of a holistic or whole of government approach. So, that's basically what I've gotten so far as feedback that, you know, it's really interesting ideas, but, you know, X, Y, and Z. And it's the X, Y, and Z I think we need to get past and really have the discussion and say, wait a minute, you know, here's some of the risk and here's why we think you need to take this step back and take a look at how an agency like the Department of Energy is organized, because it's going to be so critical in so many of these things we're discussing climate change, green energy, infrastructure, in not taking a fresh look at how it's organized and how to enable some of these decisions to get out to the marketplace, I think is a shame. Thanks, Adam. Tim? Yeah, I think some of the feedback I've gotten really mirrors Adam. It's like, yeah, great ideas, but there's only so many hours in the day and so much political capital. And so we want to get to work. And I think some of the examples that Leland gave, just how the organization is going to get in the way. And, and so I, I recognize that's a, that's a tough balance. I think even so, one of the things we tried to do in the white paper was to come up with some ideas that could capture some of the spirit of the overarching sort of system integration, serve as a platform ideas within the current organizational structure, you know, cross-cutting working groups, no program reviews. So I certainly, I think even within the current structure, I think there's certainly some more integrative I guess my, my overarching comment was, you know, whatever happens, I just, just this general idea of, of how do you organize around this increasingly integrated system? How can DOE do more to enable just this much broader set of stakeholders, NGOs, business, 
and, and, and other governmental entities to do the, the work that's going to be required of the whole system. Um, Leland, if there's any you know, last comment that you want to share with, uh, with us. I just wanted to, to give an example. So the, the infrastructure plan that the Biden administration released this morning includes $15 billion of new funding specifically for the Department of Energy to launch demonstration projects. They are very aligned with the nine earth shots, uh, which are grand challenge energy goals. Those earth shots are systems integration types challenges. How do you produce, deploy green hydrogen? How do we get to net zero buildings? Um, how do we uh, develop negative emission technologies? DOE is not organized to directly tackle any of those. And as an example of a prior initiative, which was called, the, and still exists, the Grid Modernization Initiative, uh, that was a combination of funding from the Office of Electricity and Renewable Energy, Energy Efficiency. It took more than two years for the various offices to pool the funding and release a funding solicitation to tackle that challenge. We don't have two years to address these climate challenges. We don't have two years for bureaucrats to agree to release a small portion of their funding. Um, and so this, this kind of time imperative is so important. Um, and, and again, a, an organizational structure and bureaucracy can't get in the way of that, but right now it will. Um, and why, again, so important to, to take this white paper seriously and, and think about uh, some of these solutions. I think the nature and the scale of you know, the challenge that we're all facing, you know, climate change is really unprecedented. And it's really, I really enjoyed reading your white paper. It does really help uh, sort of remind us there's no reason you have to keep doing, as you know, Adam also mentioned, like doing you know, the way, uh, just keep doing this, the same thing over and over um, when, you know, really the challenge again is just massive and it really requires us, um, you know, a different way to think, not just sort of act. Of course, they're, you know, closely related, but, you know, I certainly invite, you know, every listener to just take a moment. I mean, it's a very concise piece, uh, white paper, and just, you know, it's a really nice way for even those who do not really pay a lot of attention to how the government is organized uh, or even like DOE itself is structured, but, you know, sort of conversational starter, you know, it's just, you know, aligning uh, what needs to be done with, you know, how we are set up currently. Great. Thank you, everyone. Thanks to Jane for leading this conversation and to Tim, Adam, and Leland for joining the show. We have a link to the paper in our bio. You can find more episodes of Energy 360 wherever you listen to podcasts or on our website, csis.org. Follow us on Twitter at CSIS Energy. And as always, thanks for listening.